The scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. So in these early weeks of the year, we're taking a look at who Jesus is. And we're looking at the early chapters of the book of Mark. And this particular passage is, a, is actually a fun passage to study. Because what Jesus does here is very surprising. And there are three groups of people who are rather surprised and shocked. And then on top of that, Jesus answers one of the groups with a riddle. And so it's great fun to uh, try to figure out what's the riddle mean. Uh, and, uh, and so one of the ways that we're going to, one of the best ways to understand what this passage is teaching us about Jesus is to take a look at the three surprised groups. See, the, the seekers of the healing, the friends of the paralytic, they're surprised by what Jesus does. And the readers of the story, that's us. If we compare this to other things we've read in the Bible, it should surprise us. We should be surprised. And then the religious leaders of the people, they are shocked, shocked, and they're surprised. And one of the best ways to understand what the text is telling us about who Jesus is is to take a look at every one of these surprised groups and say, what do we learn from this particular surprise? So let's look at what surprises the, uh, the seekers of the healing and then secondly, the readers of the story. And then thirdly, the leaders of the people first. What surprises the seekers of the healing? Now, uh, this paralytic has some friends. And these guys, I guess, we assume, men, uh, are bringing, want to bring this paralytic to Jesus Christ, who's speaking at a house in Capernaum. And they want to get him there so that Jesus can heal him. Uh, we're told it's a kind of dramatic entrance because we're told they couldn't get in through the door because it was a packed place, verse 2. And then verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof. I wonder what the homeowner thought of that. And, um, <clears throat> and lowered the man 
uh, in the mat that he was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he goes over to the paralyzed man. Now, here's what would have surprised, maybe confused, maybe even irritated the, uh, the friends of the paralytic. Because Jesus goes over to the paralytic and says not, rise, get up, take up your mat and walk. He goes over to the man and says, son, and that's very tender, by the way. We'll get back to that. Son, your sins are forgiven. So I would think that some of the, you know, the friends of the paralytic might have said, uh, all right, good. That's always a good thing. But anyone with eyes in his head should see that our friend here has a slightly more urgent, a little more immediate problem. And Jesus is saying to them, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. See, the first thing we're going to learn here is that Jesus is saying there is nothing more basic than a right relationship with God. Physical health, material prosperity, those are all good things. They're great things, but nothing is more important than having a right relationship with God, reconciled to God. Nothing. Now, please notice something. Jesus does eventually heal him, does he not? Because neither the Bible in general nor Jesus in particular teach that the body is just the prison house of the soul, uh, that this life doesn't matter, that we shouldn't uh, deal with suffering and disease and poverty and disease. We shouldn't deal with those things. We should just fix our eyes on the beyond and wait to escape this, this terrible dark world. No, none of that. The Bible says that God created both soul and body. He's going to redeem us, soul and body. That's what the resurrection is all about. Uh, uh, Jesus does heal him. He does do physical healing. Uh, Our future is a material, physical future, not just heaven. We're going to have a new heavens and new earth. There's every indication that the Bible takes the body and the physical uh, and the material, our material well-being very seriously, but... As significant as they are, they are not primary. Jesus is saying there is something beyond this life that, you've, that is more important than this life. And if you don't connect to that thing which is more important than life, you won't live life well. What you need more than anything else is a right relationship with God as Father because your sins are forgiven. If you were here in, this, in the fall, we talked about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, in a sense, in the Lord's Prayer, doesn't just tell you how to pray. He tells you what kind of relationship you should have with God. He starts the prayer, our Father. And inside the prayer it says, forgive us our debts. So when Jesus here is talking about, son, your sins are forgiven, what he's actually pressing on him, what he's offering to him, is a new relationship with God, not as a boss, but as a father. So that you are a forgiven, loved, accepted child of God as Father through Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing. That's always the most important thing. No matter what your problem is, you think this is my most important, this is my most urgent problem. No, this is the biggest need. This is always the, if it hasn't happened, this is the healing you need. No matter what else is your problem, you need to have your sins forgiven. That's the most fundamental need. Now I can imagine for a second, um, some objections. I can imagine somebody out there saying, 
you really don't realize I'm suffering from a physical ailment. It's very, very serious. Uh, it's, 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 it's wrecking my life. And, uh, and it is my most urgent need. Yes, I'd be happy to work on a spiritual relationship with God at some point, but the main thing I need is I need to be well. And Jesus is saying to you, no. No, you need a relationship with God as Father even more than you need to be well. And here's why. Because even if you got that healing tonight, you're going to get sick again. Something else bad is going to happen. And you're going to be whipsawed back and forth between fear and anger and, uh, and d- dark despair. <clears throat> Unless you know God, not as just some kind of remote deity, but a father. If you're a four-year-old and you have a great father... Your father will appear to you loving, infinitely wise, and yet quite inscrutable and irritating. Because your father's constantly telling you to do things, making you stop this, start doing this, that upset you. And so it's not like four-year-olds have perfect relationships with their father. They often are crying, often screaming, because their father, at least every day, is, is telling them that you can't do this, something they really want to do. More than once a day. However, in the end, if you're a four-year-old with a great father, you fall into his arms and you trust him because you know there's actually no other way that you're ever going to get through life. And unless you have that kind of relationship with God, unless you're able to trust God and know God the way a four-year-old knows his or her father, unless you have a relationship with God as father, you're not going to be able to handle the problems of life. And if you've got a healing tonight, you're going to get sick later and you won't be able to handle that. What you need more than anything else is to be reconciled with God, a right relationship with God. You need your sins forgiven more than you need to be healed. Or maybe there's somebody out there saying, look, I'm not sick, but you're being very insensitive to me too. I have had a lot of troubles in my life. I've been ill-used. I have been, uh, I have been wronged. Uh, I, I have been abused. I've been abused. And I've got all kinds of problems in my life. And for you to tell me that the main thing I need is to be forgiven, that's pretty insensitive, that my sins have to be forgiven. I'm the one who's been abused. I'm the one who's been wrong. Don't go telling me that the main thing I need is to have my sins forgiven. That's insensitive, you say. But it's not insensitive. It's actually quite practical. If you have been wronged, really wronged, there's, there's one thing you need more than anything else. You need not to, to not be bitter, by the way. And uh, have you ever heard bitter described like this? Bitterness is the poison that you drink hoping the other person will drop dead. Because you see, if you cannot forgive somebody who's wronged you, they win. If you cannot radically and completely forgive someone who's wronged you, they win. Because they rob you of your, of, your, uh, of your joy in many ways, and they distort your life in many ways. If you stay angry at them, you're, you're drinking the poison, hoping they're going to drop dead. No, you're going to drop dead. And so if there's one thing that a wronged person needs above any, everything else, you need to be able to forgive radically the person who wronged you. And guess what? You will never be able to forgive, especially if you've been really hurt. You'll never be able to forgive serious wrongs unless you have experienced forgiveness yourself.
unless you see yourself as a forgiven sinner, on the one hand, you won't have the emotional humility necessary to forgive someone else. You'll feel too superior. But unless you see yourself as a forgiven, loved, and accepted sinner, you won't have the emotional wealth and the ballast to forgive somebody else. No, 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 no. Jesus is right. Jesus is right. You need to have your sins forgiven. You need to be reconciled to God more than you need anything else. It's the most urgent need. If it hasn't happened to you, then it's the one healing that has to happen before any other healing can happen. So that's what we learned from the first surprise, the surprise of the seekers of the healing. What in the world are you giving this guy forgiveness of sins when he's paralyzed? And Jesus is saying, it's because you need that more than you need to get up and walk. Now, the second group that is actually surprised, believe it or not, is us. I said there's, there's something that surprises the seekers of the healing. Secondly, there's something that surprises the readers of the story. That's us, excuse me. As you might tell, I'm, I got only 80% of a voice tonight. There we go. We're the readers of the story. We're people who read the story, and we've read other stories in the Bible. And if you had time, and I'm sure this would have hit you, but you don't really have time to hear it read, and then I get up to speak. But if you reflect a little bit, what, when Jesus goes up to the man who has not said a thing, and says, son, your sins are forgiven. That immediately makes you surprised if you've read anything else in the Bible. Because from the beginning to the end of the Bible, there is an iron, iron rule. And that is, before God, there is no forgiveness without repentance. You, you, God will give you forgiveness, but you have to repent. God doesn't look down and see people doing these bad things and saying, okay, no, you're forgiven doesn't matter if you're sorry or not. doesn't matter. You're forgiven. No, he doesn't do that. God never forgives. There's no forgiveness before God without repentance. And yet here's Jesus walking over and saying to a man who has not said a thing to him, son, your sins are forgiven. What's up with that? Are we surprised? Are you surprised now? Okay, you should be. Okay, so we the readers are surprised. <clears throat> and what's the answer? Well, would you agree, would you grant that neither Jesus nor Mark, the, the author who's giving us the story, nor Jesus who's the, the uh, main character in the story, that neither Jesus nor the gospel writer Mark act as if that they are somehow overturning everything the Bible has ever said? I mean, they don't, they don't act like this is a great revolution. I mean, when Jesus, when Jesus tells the people, you don't have to obey the ceremonial law, you don't have to eat the kosher only, you know, when he, when he does that, Everybody realizes, wait a minute, this is a change. This is, a, this is an overturning of the past. There's no indication of that here. Let's grant, I think we should grant, that there's no particular reason why we would think that Mark or Jesus think that they are overturning everything the Bible has ever said. And so if we grant that, and I think we should, then how do we explain this? And I think the answer is pointing to something really wonderful. In John, and pardon me, in, a little later on in verse 8, we see this. Uh, Jesus looks at the Pharisees or the, the teachers of the law, and it says, it says uh, in verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit 
that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. Now, we're going to get to them in a second. But see, in verse 6, it says, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. See that? They're not saying anything out loud. They're thinking to themselves. And yet Jesus can hear them thinking. It says in verse 8, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking, which makes perfect sense. Jesus Christ, Son of God, he was able to read their hearts and know what they were thinking. Ah, and if he's got that ability, suddenly we realize what's going on here. There must have been, there must have been an inarticulate desire for mercy and grace and forgiveness in this man's man's heart. There must have been an unexpressed, inarticulate yearning, a cry of the heart, as it were, just an attitude. Oh, and Jesus is so gracious that he reads the man's heart. And even though the desire for forgiveness is fragmentary, it's uh, imperfect, it's unexpressed, but even a fragmentary, imperfect attitude of spiritual dependence is enough. And what Jesus does is he responds to that and he grants forgiveness. So eager is he to give us his love and his grace. I mean, Jesus is not like a, Jesus is not waiting for the man to do it all right. He, he, uh, he's pushing his grace. He's looking for every opening. He's creating the opening. His grace is initiating. His grace is aggressive. But see, so eager is he to love us, so eager is he to be gracious to us, that even when the desire for forgiveness was imperfect, fragmentary, inarticulate, he pounces and he grants forgiveness. What do we learn about this? Well, I think we learn two things, and I'd like to, I'd like to just uh, you know, take a moment to, to think about it. We learn two things here, I think. One is about the trustworthiness of Jesus, and the other is the greatness of the gift of forgiveness. One's the trustworthiness of Jesus and the greatness of the gift. On the trustworthiness, I, I think uh, in Mark, there are two or three places where we see this tenderness. You notice he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And he's looking at a man who can't even express, can't even you know, say it out loud, and yet he, he's that sensitive to where we are. And that willing to forgive, even when we don't have it all together. And he, uh, the tenderness and the compassion is remarkable. Uh, notice Jesus is not like the schoolmaster, no offense to those of you who are, who sits there with the child and says, all right, but say please, please, sir, all right, you know, Okay, if you want to ask for something, you have to say it. You have to come up. You have to say please. You have to say please, sir. You have to do all these things. You don't see that in Jesus. That might be appropriate for the schoolroom, for the classroom, but it's not appropriate here. Jesus is like the father in the prodigal son, you know, parable. The son is coming to repent, and the father doesn't wait on the steps. He sees his son coming from afar, and he runs to him before he's even repented, and he pounces on him and he kisses him before he even repents. He He doesn't love him because he repents. The boy can repent because he's loved. I mean, that that aggressive grace, you see it in Jesus, and it's so tender, too. It's so, uh, and, and 
and of course, there's other places in the book of Mark, like when he touches the deaf mute, his, you know, his, his ears and his, his mouth and he sighs. But to me, the most, the thing this reminds me of, the most tender of all the, the miracles uh, of healing is when Jesus goes to the, the home of a, a little girl who's dead. She's dead. And she's, her dead body's laying there. And everybody's wailing and mourning, and he sits down next to her, and he takes her by the hand. Remember this? And the eyewitness, it's very clearly an eyewitness account because they record what he said in Aramaic. He takes her by the hand. He says, Talitha kum. Talitha was a diminutive. It was a word that meant little one. It was the kind of word that you, a parent would use with a child. So it would be like honey or sweetheart. And kum means get up. And so you see, Jesus sits down next to a dead girl, takes her by the hand, and like a parent, on a sunny morning, says to her, Honey, it's time to get up. And he's facing the most implacable foe, the most inexorable foe that we have, which is death. And he reaches right through death, takes her by the hand, and gently pulls her up right through it to life. Now, here's what I want to say. Trust this man. <laughs> these healings, these, the tenderness, the compassion. Trust this man. Why don't we trust him? Why don't you trust him? Why wouldn't you trust a man like this? How much more compassionate do you want? How much more trustworthy should he be? What else can he possibly do to make us trust him? So, number one, trust this man. The second thing we learn here, though, is just the greatness of the, um, of the gift of, of forgiveness. It's remarkable that Jesus Christ, Son of God, come to earth, of all the things that he wants to do for people, and he does it at the drop of a hat, as soon as there's any opening at all, the gift of forgiveness. It must be incredible. And it is. Um, two things about the importance of this gift. Uh, one is we live in, the, in one of the very first uh, societies in history that doesn't have consensus about what is right and wrong. And that's the reason why Franz Kafka, Franz Kafka wrote a, uh, a, a novel called The Trial. And in it, there's a, the, the main character is Joseph K. Uh, you know, K, just an initial, sort of to get across the idea of anonymity. And Joseph K is living a nice life, but then one day he's arrested, and he's put under house arrest for days, for weeks, for months. He's trying to find out what he was arrested for, what was his crime. Nobody tells him. People are constantly saying, you need to talk to my superior, and he can't figure it out. And he starts to say, well, what did I do wrong? And he begins to ask for this. Maybe I did this. Maybe, maybe it was this. I, I did this. Maybe that's what I'm being imprisoned for. And finally, the way the book ends uh, is uh, one of his uh, prison guard takes him out into a uh, a courtyard stabs him through the heart and he dies. And that's how the book ends. And you might say, oh yeah, okay, Kafka. You know, it's cool because we're not supposed to understand what it's all about. It's just, it's real, it's, you know. Well, he actually tells you what it's about. In his diary, he says in his diary, uh, the state in which we modern people, he didn't say that, but that's what he means. The state in which we find ourselves today is sinful, independent of guilt. Sinful, independent of guilt. You know what he means? 
We live in the first society that can't tell you whether the affair you've had with somebody who's not your spouse, is it right or wrong? Well, some people say right, some people say wrong. We live in the very first society that, that says right and wrong is up to you. Don't let anybody put a guilt trip on you. All moral claims are person-specific and socially constructed. And, and so who's to say what is right or wrong? So we kind of live in a society that can't even define right and wrong. Therefore, we live, he says, essentially, we live in a society that says, don't feel guilty about anything. And yet, he says, we feel like sinners anyway. And that's the truth. We still feel like failures. We still, we say we don't believe in sin, we don't believe in hell, and yet we have a sense of condemnation we can't shake. We feel like fakes. We feel like imposters. We feel inadequate. We do feel shame. We feel guilt. And we can't even put our finger on it. That's what Kafka is saying. There's a voice almost like in us that calls us cowards, calls us fools, calls us ugly, says you're not living up. And, and when I was a young guy, when I was a college student, everybody blamed this sense of condemnation that everybody walks around with that we're not right and we're very defensive and we don't want people to look into us. You know, we're all afraid of what people are going to see. This sense of condemnation that we can't shake, the sense of shame and inadequacy and guilt that we can't shake. When I was young, it was all blamed on psychology, our parents. Your parents didn't love you right. And then you run into somebody who's had great parents, and they're just having the same problem you are, and you realize, I can't be. But today, it's society's doing it to us. Society's not letting us be ourselves. But the fact of the matter is, we need forgiveness. And I read recently an interesting book by a, a, a British Christian writer named Francis Spufford, and he has a chapter on what it means to feel forgiven. And he says it's a lot like, actually, he says it right here. He says, <clears throat> what does it feel like to feel yourself forgiven? In my experience, it's like a toothache. Stopping because a tooth has been removed. It, it, it has the numb surprisingness of something that hurt not being there anymore. And what he means is this. If, you, if you've actually lived with a toothache for a long time and finally you go to the dentist and it's taken out, he says what the surprise is, you realize, gosh, I was in more pain than I thought. You know, you get used to it. But when you're always in pain, there's nothing, nothing tastes. Uh, everything is, you're always kind of feeling pressed. You're always feeling unhappy. You're always feeling the pain. So no matter what situation you're in, you're never enjoying anything. There's, there's this background ache, and everything is sullied, and everything is, is harmed. And when the tooth comes out, you say, gosh, I was in more pain than I thought. I'd gotten used to it. Wow, I feel better. My goodness, I feel better. He says, that's what it's like to be forgiven. If you've never experienced it, let me just tell you, you are, you are more unhappy than you think. The sense of inadequacy, the sense of shame. You say, well, I don't feel guilty about anything. It's that Kafka's got it. No, you may not feel guilty about anything, and yet you know you're a sinner. You feel like you're a sinner. You feel there's something wrong with you. You haven't lived up. You feel the inadequacy. You feel the, you know, that, that voice that tells you you're a coward or you're not living up or you're ugly. And when it goes, oh, my goodness, you say, I had no idea. I wasn't really enjoying anything in life. That background ache is gone. And that's what Jesus offers. And that's why Jesus says, oh, my goodness, I came from heaven and earth to give this. I can't wait to give it to you. So we said there's three groups of people, who, however, who have been um, 
surprised. And the third group are the teachers of the law. And they're very surprised. And the answer, or you might say the response to their surprise and shock, actually tells us, gives us the most penetrating understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Notice it says in verse 6, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's right. They're absolutely right. When they see him, Jesus, walking over to a man and saying, Your sins are forgiven, they're saying... This guy's claiming to be God. I've had people tell me, well, where does the Bible, in the Bible, where does Jesus claim to be God? I don't see it. Where does he claim to be God? And I answer, he claims to be God on every page if you know how to read. And here's one. Tom, Dick, Harry. Tom reaches over, punches Dick in the nose. And Harry turns around and says, Tom, I forgive you. Well, Dick's going to turn around and say, excuse me, Harry. But you can't forgive Tom for hitting me in the nose. You can only forgive somebody if the sin is against you. You can't forgive somebody if the sin is against somebody. You can only forgive people if sin is against you. Right. So if Jesus Christ walks over to a man and says, all your sins are forgiven, who can say such a thing? Only the creator. Only the creator of Tom, Dick, and Harry. Only your creator, only the person you owe everything to. Only he can say, all your sins have been against me. Oh, they may have been against Tom and Dick and Harry and a lot of other people, but they're also against me. And these guys knew immediately Jesus is claiming to be God himself. How do you like that? But in response to their unhappiness, how do you dare you call yourself God? Jesus gives a riddle. And that riddle is wonderful because it shows us what he came to do. See the riddle? Why are you thinking these things, he says, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of him of them all. Here's the question. Which is easier, to say you're forgiven or to say you're healed? And see, actually, there's, it's a trick question because there, there's two answers and they're both kind of right, but you've got to understand both those answers. On the surface, what are you going to say? You're going to say, okay, well, I would say it's certainly easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say take up your bed and walk because you and I can forgive somebody, but we can't heal a paralyzed man. And there's a sense in which that's the right answer because Jesus says to show you that, I'm not, that I've got the power, that I am not like the rest of you. I'm going to heal the man, and he heals him, and he walks out, and so Jesus is trying to say, yes, I am who I said I was. But the, word, the, the Greek word for get up, see, in, in verse 11 and 12, it says, get up, and he got up, is a, a kind of unusual Greek word that Mark actually uses in chapter 16, when it talks about what happened to Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. On Easter Sunday, he got up. And Mark is signaling something. Or you might say Jesus is signaling us something. And the signal is the only reason why he can get up now, the only reason why God can, that Jesus can forgive him and heal him is because someday Jesus is going to lay down in death and rise for our justification. And so in the end, here's the point. Yeah, it, it's easier for, if, if somebody wrongs me, 
I can forgive. And in that sense, you might say, it's easier than trying to heal a paralyzed man. But for Jesus to forgive all our sins, that's infinitely harder than saying, take up your bed and walk. Because it means dying. It means going to the cross. You know, two, two, two illustrations to end. The story of Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare. Remarkable. Uh, depiction of the terror of guilt not being forgiven unforgiven you might call it Lady Macbeth helps Macbeth her husband kills some people murders some people and it, it, it unhinges her mind and she walks around at night she sees blood on her hands and she tries to wash it out and she can't that's her guilt of course out damn spot out damn spot oh who knew that the old man would have so much blood in him? Not all the perfumes in Arabia can sweeten this little hand. You know, later on, Macbeth, talking to a doctor about his wife, who's now, her mind has gone, calls guilt that perilous stuff that weighs upon the heart. That ache, that sense of inadequacy that I think in, in modern people is more inchoate, is more background. You don't realize to what degree it's weighing on your heart, but it's there. But in her case, it drove her mad. Why? Because guilt is indelible. It is not easy to get out. This is why Jesus is saying, which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal? And he's, the, answer, the ultimate answer is guilt, sin, is not easy. Lady Macbeth can't get it out. I can't get the stain out. I can't get the stain out. And see, the reason we have this voice in us that, that says that gives us that sense of condemnation is because we know whatever your moral standards are, whether it's a standard of love or of justice or of integrity or purity, whatever it is, you violated them. And you can't just whitewash it off. You can't just turn over a new leaf. You can't just, well, I'm going to try harder and live a better life. There's something indelible about the spots. You can't get the stain out yourself, the damn spot. The other story I'll just tell you about is an old Celtic fairy tale, not very well known, but it's a lovely fairy tale called The Black Bull of Norway. And the heart of the story is about a prince who is in a battle and in the battle kills someone that he regrets killing. He feels great shame over it, great regret, great remorse. And not surprisingly, because... Uh, after the battle, he tries to, to wash his tunic, his shirt, because there's blood on it, and he can't get it out. The blood, will, the damn spot will not come out. And so it is decreed that in the kingdom, if there's any young woman who could get the spot out, could, could get the blood stains out of his shirt, that woman would be his bride, because that woman would be his true love. And the story, by the way, is a sort of a Cinderella-ish story because there's actually there's a woman, kind of a nasty older woman with three daughters, and there's a, a girl who's a serving girl, the humble serving girl who serves, you know, and waits on, on the family. And one night, she doesn't even know about the story. She doesn't know about the, the bloody shirt. And one night, uh, the bloody shirt has, has been brought to this house, and all the daughters were trying to get the stain out. They can't get it out. The, the serving girl doesn't know about the story, and one night she sees all this laundry to be done, and she sees this bloody shirt, and she washes it, and it comes out. The blood comes out. 
And the next morning, the, the kind of the evil stepmother kind of person sees what has happened and grabs the shirt, takes her oldest daughter up to the prince and says, look, my daughter got the stain out. This is your true bride. And of course, the way the story goes is the prince is okay, so they get engaged, except the prince doesn't, somehow feels like, no, this can't be the one. And as you might guess, there's, a, uh, there's quite a, a, a wonderful story arc that in the end brings him to see who really got the blood out. And you see, whoever gets the stain out, the damn spot, whoever can deal with that has got to be your savior and your true love. And Jesus comes to you and says, I'm that person. I'm going to the cross. It's going to take a lot. You know, Malachi 3 says about the Messiah, he will be like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap and he will purify you. Jesus says, I can get the stain out. I can get rid of all that. But I'm going to have to go to the cross to do it. But I am doing it. And so come to me. I'm your true love. I can wash off. I can wash the bloody shirt. I'm your true love. So go to him and trust him. And don't worry about having to get his attention because if you go to him to trust him and ask for forgiveness, you will find that he's been trying to get your attention. So eager is he to bless you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for... uh, the gift of forgiveness. We do want the toothache to be gone. We do want the, the, the spot to be taken out. There is a sense of inadequacy, of ugliness, of foolishness, of not measuring up, a sense of guilt and shame that, that to a great degree we've learned to live with. We don't even want to admit how unhappy we are. We need this. We long for this. And your son is our true love who can get the, get the stain out. We pray then that you would teach us how to take hold of this wonderful gift. And so that it would open up a whole new way of thinking and living in our lives. So I pray, Father, that you would uh, help us to apply this to our lives through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.